Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Talking with Mike McCune today. You're in the Air Force Reserves right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Prior to being in the reserves, were you active duty or? So I've uh, always been, honestly, you're kind of familiar with how the structure works. I've always fallen under reserve command. However, my first bunch of years, I spent full time um, in the Air Force. So technically it was a reserve position. It was just, I treated it like active duty. I worked with active duty. I was just owned by the reserves, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You said you grew up in Kansas. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you come from a military family? No, uh, I was really the first one in my family to join. Um, besides my grandparents who were drafted, uh, I was the only one to actually volunteer to join. My, pretty much my family, my dad was like an IT guy, database administrator. And so he just dealt off like computer-based jobs. And so you grew up in Kansas until what age? Pretty much until I left for the military. So around 20, 20 21. What led you to go into the Air Force Reserves? I I had a friend who initially, military was not my mind. I hated school. School was not my thing at all. But I was just kind of going to school because that's kind of what I was taught to do. Like, okay, finish high school, you go to college and get a job and do that whole thing. Um, But I just hated the idea. I didn't like working, didn't um, didn't like working for someone else. I wanted to own my own business, didn't like school. And so randomly a Marine recruiter called me up and was like, Hey, you ever thought about the Marines? I was like, no. <laughs> and so I tried to give him every excuse in the book, not to meet him. And he called me out and everyone. And so I eventually went to the recruiting office, talked to him like a week later, there I was taking the oath. <laughs> uh, and then long story short, I ended up backing out of the Marines from right before boot camp and switching to the air force pretty much on Every one of my friends' advices who was in the Marines, they're like, don't do it, don't join, it's stupid, we're getting out, we all hate it. I'm like, all right, like, they all told me to do Air Force. I'm like, okay. So I went to the nearest Air Force recruiter, uh, talked to them, pretty much was leaving a few months later. Where did, you, where did you go to boot camp? So all Air Force enlisted go to San Antonio. They go down to Lackland Air Force Base. Um, so it's hot part of Texas. It's not too bad. That's where the Alamo is, if you're familiar with the Alamo. Um, we do eight weeks there. Okay. And then from, from boot camp, did you sign a contract to go a particular route in, in the Air Force or? I, I did. Uh, so my first job was what we call AFE, Aircrew Flight Equipment. And it's working on all the pilots and air crews, like parachutes, helmets, oxygen masks, survival kits, uh, life rafts all that stuff, anything that they carry on the plane with them and fly with pretty much we did inspections on it and um, repaired it and did all that stuff for them. That transition to you doing, well, you got involved with the PJs. 
tell me tell me a little bit about the transition from working on the pilots kits to what you're doing now and kind of the the progression there before i joined i was always big into like physical fitness and crossfit and um i got into mixed martial arts and i did uh cage fighting for a little while i got a black belt in taekwondo and then got into jiu-jitsu and muay thai and all that stuff the reason what brought me to the military is i wanted to do something hard and a little more physically challenging and that's why the marines really attracted me however when i got to the air force and i joined the crew field afe aircrew flight equipment i just uh didn't feel fulfilled i didn't feel like that was what i was wanting to do and I met like this guy who's at McConnell, where I was first stationed. And he said he was a SEER specialist, is what his title was Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And he was teaching a combatives class. So we're learning jujitsu and strikes and stuff. And like, I knew all this pretty well. I've been teaching it on the outside and actually doing it. I rolled with him, took his course, and pretty much was like his assistant instructor through the whole course. And uh, I'm like, man, this is what you get paid to do. Like, I'm over here inspecting helmets, and you're over here doing what I like to do on the side for free, and you get paid for this. And um, he's like, yeah. And so uh, I looked for vacancies, found uh, just a couple job openings. One was down at Patrick, um, working at the rescue squadron. And so I interviewed with them, uh, and they got picked up, and they put me through training. You know, it's it's kind of like a, it was a long story because that's that's going through training is just a whole long process in itself. It's like at least two years. And there's tons of extra training on top of that to get uh, where you should be. Tell me a little bit about the, uh, the training that you went through. Cause not a lot of people have really even heard of SEER. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then on top of that, even people that have heard of SEER school or, you know, SEER training have no idea what the instructors have to go through to be qualified to teach that. So give me uh, a condensed version uh, as best you can, because I I know it's pretty in depth. All right, so when I got picked up, the first thing they asked me was like, okay, what's your physical condition like? Are you physically in shape to handle everything? Like, yeah, I'll be fine. And they make you take this um, pass test, they call the pass test, it's like a physical assessment test several times before going. So they send you to what they call selection, I think it's called like, they call it triple S now, like Sears Specialist Selection or something like that. Uh, and it's two weeks down in Texas, it's back in San Antonio. Um, but we do it at, right outside Lackland Air Force Base. It's at Medina. It's a little annex. Um, and that's where all Air Force Special Operations does all their uh, pretty much selection courses right out there. And so Sears Selection in itself is like, I think overall we started with like 50 my, my selection course started with like 50 people and we went down, we graduated seven people from just my little selection course. And they hold like five of those per year. And that pretty much entailed, like you show up, uh, you have long days, you start early morning. Uh, it's lots of rucking. You have like 70 pounds of, or 60 pound rucksacks on. You run everywhere, carrying logs. Uh, they, you have stuff to memorize um, and they're constantly grading you on everything you do. So you have to present like small little three to five minute lessons. You're just working on public speaking and you're doing this while you're, st- you're stressed out, you're tired, you're hungry. And so the first week is all on base. And then at the, on the weekends, they give you an assignment like, hey, here's some selling projects you need to do. So I find it kind of comical 
when I was AFE, aircrew flight equipment, uh, we had to sew. We learned how to use a sewing machine if you have to repair materials or things like that. And I was like, man, like I joined the military to be a seamstress. Like it's not, <laughs> no, it's not I was wanting to go shoot things. Uh, I'd go to seer training and then now I'm sewing stuff again, but with a hand needle, an actual sail needle that you use for canvas. So I'm like, so I went from using a sewing machine down to hand sewing. Like I've made a lot of progress in my life. <laughs> so, but uh, these sewing projects, if you slept for an hour, you weren't going to get the project done and you're going to fail the course. Like you went all weekend straight through 70 some hours, no sleep, just constantly sewing. You know, we had the joke, we would, we had like videos playing on our laptops in the background, like surviving the cut. Have you ever seen that TV show? From like a long, it came out a while ago, I think History Channel, but it's like it goes through all like the different uh, selection courses for, you know, SF and Steels and Rangers and all that. We're like, man, we would be on a show, but no one wants to watch people just sew the entire time. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, was, it was quite terrible. So it's, it was like one of the, like that, it, honestly, that's what made it hard. It was just like just the constant tedious little tasks and no some just sleep deprivation that you get. So anyway, once you pass all that, you move on to your last phase and it's out in the field. You're actually out in the woods and they're teaching you like basic survival skills, like building a fire, uh, building shelters, finding water, finding food, things like that, land navigation. Um, so you spend a week out there and that's when you really get like tested more. So um, they give you assignments at night uh, where you have to either improve on your shelter, write a lesson, dig out these holes, build a bigger, bigger shelter or improve on something or they need to build a, a ground the air signal, things like that, that you wouldn't think would be too difficult, but they, the cadre make it extremely hard and you work all night long. And so you might get a couple hours of sleep and you're up early again and you're just repeating the process all day long. Um, and then you're constantly graded on top of that. So that you must have like all your items have to be perfectly sharpened and cleaned. You have to be clean shaven. Just look, look presentable and professional the entire time. And so if you fail any of these tasks multiple times, it'll cut you, for, cut you from the course. Um, but anyway, once you make it through that, we had graduation on our like, 21st day or something. And we knew we were going up to Fairchild, Washington in Spokane. And that's to actually start our actual pipeline. So after selection, they'll send a group of us, which we had seven, go up there. And out of a total, I think they have five uh, selection courses. They'll send all the graduates up there. And we started what we call TEAM with about around 50 people we'll have all the different phases from uh we to, well for one we have to go through all the prerequisite courses which is what the air crew go through they go through what we call sv80 which is the normal seer course that uh if you require seer training in the military everyone goes through this level c course so that's one we had to go through and that's three weeks long and that pretty much just teaches you academics and takes you out to the woods and does your survival stuff and you go to resistance training and all that escape stuff anyways what is, what is resistance training like resistance training is well the, the pretty much if you get captured in some kind of capacity from peacetime governmental attention say we're in china right and the chinese government or you know i guess if you're going through customs and they pull you to the side and want to question you like what are you doing here and stuff how do you answer that and how do you not prosecute yourself getting saying something accidentally like you didn't mean and get put in their you know legal system and then trying to prosecute you what if you're a pow so it could be uh, at war time you know right now we're not really technically have a war going on 
but if you were at a war with the government, you know, it could be a POW. You know, we look back to like Vietnam, World War II, things like that. So how do you handle yourself in those situations? And then lastly is um, hostage or, you know, if you get kidnapped or taken hostage by a terrorist organization. So each one of those things, your posture and your resistance has to change and how you react. And so we, we teach all those like what to say, how to do it, if, you are, if you're being questioned or interrogated, stuff like that. And that's what resistance training is. So. So we go through like that basic um, course. Uh, we have underwater egress, which is like if you're in a helicopter and it crashes in the water, uh, how do you get out? And that's only like a one or two day course. You have a water survival course, which is just surviving at sea on a life raft. And they do the whole thing like in a big pool. And then uh, and that's, you know, like linking up with people, getting in the life raft, meeting your basic needs inside the life raft, stuff like that. Uh, we have uh, emergency parachuting. So some of the air crew, if, if their aircraft is engine failure and things like that, and they have to bail out and they have parachutes on board. And so we had to teach them how to actually jump out of the aircraft and how to do a PLF landing, parachute landing fall without, you know, so they don't break their legs or anything. Uh, so we have a emergency parachuting course. I think that's the most of the prerequisite courses. After that, we have our whole group. Once they all finish all those, we'll start what we call team. We have a month-long indoctrination course, and that's just going out to the woods and getting used to how each phase of training is going to go. And it's pretty much just like the same thing, building shelters, building fires, finding food, land navigation, teaching. And so that was actually one of the harder courses I've been, or one of the hardest phases I've been through, I thought. And you'll see a theme through all of SEER training is no sleep and no food. You're pretty much sleep-deprived and food-deprived the entire time. And it's just constant physical work. So you finish that. You can't really fail out of that phase. You can, you can perform badly and poorly, but they don't let you like actually like fail. They won't kick you out. If, they don't, if the cadre doesn't like you, they'll maybe try to make your life more miserable so you quit, but they can't fail you on indoc. But all the other phases after that, when we start, we call um, FAM, familiarization phase, and so on that's where you can actually start failing the phase. If you fail at teaching, you fail at firecraft, you fail at building a shelter, till it's not their standards, they can drop you from the course. Each phase is approximately, I don't know, close to a month long. So we have indoc, uh, and every class is a little bit different. They wanna, the one thing about SEER is you, it's constant unknown. You don't know what's gonna happen next. Uh, they wanna leave it a mystery, so it's, in each class, like you can, one class before you, like, hey, this is what happens, but it's going to be different for your class, so you don't know. So my phases went uh, in-doc, and then familiarization phase, the first phase, fam. And then we had uh, desert, is what we called it. So we went to a desert phase, and you pretty much see what it's like living in sand dunes, or living in sagebrush, catching snakes for food, going through dehydration. Uh, we had to do like 30-some hours of no water. And you just kind of get a feel for what it's like to be in a desert and what, if you were to teach someone, you, you can teach from experience, you know what to expect. Uh, you do land navigation through desert, you, because things look, you know, closer than what they actually are. Uh, these are no like references to, to guide you. Uh, from there, we went to the tropics phase. So we went out to like way out in the coast. Uh, it was the Olympic National Forest. It's a rainforest in Washington state. So there you build shelters and you, t and you know, there's different principles for every environment you're in because if you're in the normal like desert or in the temperate forest, 
you can build a shelter around the ground, but in the rainforest, you don't want to do that because everything's wet, right? So, and there's a lot more bugs and things that fires are different or hard to make. Um, uh, the terrain is harder to navigate through, it's so thick. So you kind of learn like these principles. Uh, we did an open ocean phase where you go out and survive on life rafts for 20 some hours. Uh, they toss you in the middle of the ocean, you get seasick. Then you get rescued by a helicopter, coast guard. You learn to make, make landfall, swimming to like an island. Uh, you live on the island for, I don't know, like four or five days, just eating mussels and crabs. So you kind of learn all these different things. Where the phases get a little different is, um, so after that, once they cover your basics, you, learn, you have a land navigation phase where it's all map and compass use and no GPSs. And you just, all you do is hike for nine, 10 days straight, slant nav every single day. And you, you could also, so from there, uh, after land nav, we had what we call, my favorite phase was the evasion phase. So one of the, the E in SEER, one of the E's in SEER is evasion, right? Hiding from your enemies. So how they started that one off is like, you get captured, rolled up, you get interrogated and stuff, you're handcuffed and zip, zip tied or whatever they use. And you get the right opportunity to escape and uh, you start evading. So before all this happens, you have a bunch of planning and mission planning. You know where you're at. You know the scenario. You have the intelligence. And so your goal is just get away and don't get caught again. They bring, they bring all kinds of people out from like their other cadres to other seer guys to whoever wants to join in on the search for you. Uh, they're all out there trying to find you. And you don't want to get caught because they, they'll definitely make your life uh, a lot worse if you get caught. <laughs> so uh, we spent the next like five days evading through the woods, living on pretty much just plants and berries and things. We get rescued, our convoy's going back to base, and then we notice the convoy makes a wrong turn that we don't normally make. Like, where's it going? All of a sudden, explosions go off. Uh, people jump on our truck with guns pointed at us and scream us, get off, strip us down, give us jumpsuits to put on put hoods on us, toss us in the trunks of cars and drive, drive off, you know, for like an hour. And then we end up, we're all split up into small groups now. And a few of us end up in the basement of some house and we spend about 24 hours in the basement and we finally figure out, okay, now it's time to escape. We need to get out of here. And the guy's coming back to take us to more of a prison, I guess. So right now is our opportune time. And now we're in the city and we have to evade through like an urban area. So we're doing dumpster diving, finding disguises and, that so it's it a fun phase i had a good time that was probably my favorite one is you spend a lot more time away from your instructors and you're not constantly being like judged and graded the whole time and then we have other phases like a combatives phase where you learn basic jiu-jitsu and punching and all that and then weapon disarmaments and things and we have a teaching phase where you learn to teach um, and so that's what leads up to graduation. You finally graduate and then you go off to the field flights and teach that course that you first have to go through the very beginning all the air crew go through, they call it SV-80. That's what we have to teach for the next like six months or so. And you are getting certified as an instructor then. So you're being back to being graded again, back to new lessons, but this time you're teaching a full two week course. And it's just the survival and evasion part. The resistance part's held off. It's different and it's taught by someone else. So we do that. And once you graduate there, you have other courses. We have to go through airborne training. You go to airborne Fort Benning and jump out of planes. You go to Arctic Survival School up in Alaska. You go through a bunch of what we call JPRA courses, Joint Personal Recovery Agency courses. 
that help us work like overseas and different personal recovery cells. And so it's just constant improvement, constant training after that. You, know, you have seven level training, which it's like an upgrade. That's kind of the progression. And then you can get assigned to different squadrons, right? So I got assigned to go work with the PJs on rescue. You know, uh, their job is all rescue based. So we do a lot of like, you know, they do a lot of jumping, they do a lot of shooting, they do a lot of stuff in the water. It could be swift water rescue, diving, it could be driving jet skis, any of those things. Um, skiing, ice climbing, building systems, ropes, stuff like that. Uh, other people get assigned to OSSs, operational support squadrons, where they're just doing reoccurring training, refresher training for the air crew. So we're just, you know, teaching them how to survive again, how to survive in the water, how to whatever their, their job to, technically is. Uh, there's also other jobs where you get assigned to what we call an STS, a special tactics squadron. It's similar to the RQS, but this is more mission-based instead of rescue-based. But yeah, that's kind of like the just and idea behind what SEER does. How long have you actually been in the Air Force? Just hit 10 years in October. It's been a fun journey, I need to say the least. What deployments have you done and in what capacity? I've done three deployments. Uh, my first one was when I was AFE. And I was assigned to Incirlik Air Base in Turkey. Uh, and honestly, that was probably one of the most fun times I've had in the military itself. Uh, I wouldn't even call it an actual deployment, but it counted as one because we had like, the base was huge. We had permanent people living there, movie theater, swimming pool, two gyms. Uh, you go off base and go party in the alley, no alcohol restriction. So that job... Anytime we had a, like a mission, I was working with refuelers at the time. So the planes would go up and refuel other planes in the air. So I would make sure like their all their uh, life rafts, their helmets, oxygen masks, uh, survival radios, all that stuff was good to go. Nothing was wrong with it. Each time they flew, and then I'd you know pass out the radios to them, and then take their radios back because um, they had classified information on them. So I had to keep them controlled. Uh, that was kind of my mission there. I took a secondary. Uh, job when I was there and I became we call like the squadron personal training leader so I did a lot of personal training I taught majors lieutenant colonels chiefs uh, group PT sessions and just kind of led them out like whatever their goals were they knew the chief or get a better air force PT test score or just want to lose weight or whatever they want to do I work with them a lot because that's kind of what my passion was on the outside of the military. It was all, I guess, just like kind of physical training. And so I carried it over into the military side because my actual job there was very minimal. So I might as well do something more productive than what I like to do. My other, other missions or my other deployments, um, I went to Afghanistan. I was in Kandahar in 2018. Yeah, 2018. And not a whole lot happened. So I was, that was when I was a SEER specialist then pretty slow. I think the guys had like one mission the entire time I was there. I didn't really get to do anything for it. It was an Afghan shot in the throat and, you know, they got him and transported him to the hospital. Pretty much I kind of took the personal training role again and did programming for the guys. I uh, worked with them on their Olympic lifts. And so, yeah, that was Afghanistan. It was a, it was interesting. It was kind of getting like my feel for what you actually do uh, what their mission is while deployed and how, you know, how the field goes. Uh, so that was more of an actual deployment, I'd say. And then my last one, I just got back from about a year ago or yeah, a little bit less than a year ago. Uh, I was in Iraq. Yeah. We were in Al-Assad and uh, 
so there, um, I was, you know, seer guy again, and I worked as a battle captain a lot of times. So pretty much what I did was I would sit inside what we called rock rescue operations center and monitor all these chat networks and stuff. If there was a beacon that went off, if there's an aircraft that reported, you know, going down, had made a call or a radio hit that went off, sorry, radio hit that went off, anything like that, I would be notified. I would see it on screen and I would spin up the guys saying, hey, we might potentially have a mission. You know, that was kind of my job then. Yeah, Iraq was a crazy time because we got rocketed. We, had, we, got, more, we got more rockets in Afghanistan than we did in Iraq, but we actually had ballistic missiles thrown at us from Iran when I was there. <laughs> And so if, if you know the difference between a rocket and a missile, there's a huge difference. Um, so <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. Your time as a SEER specialist, you've encountered personnel from, from all branches, I would imagine. Personnel from all ranks, right? I mean, because you're yes. training officers and enlisted people as well. Yes, definitely. And as your role as a SEER specialist, you're kind of taking on... Well, I, I don't know what your role was. I mean, as an instructor, do you also take on uh, like a role-playing part where you're serving as like the enemy? Sometimes, yeah. You're enlisted, right? You're, yes. You're, okay, so what is, uh, were you like E6? E6, yeah, tech, technical sergeant. Where, where I'm going with this is it takes, I would imagine some, some tactfulness and, and some skill to balance that and being able to teach officers and enlisted alike. How, how does that dynamic work when, when you're the person that's teaching and are those classes mixed or are you dealing with officers in one class and then enlisted in another yeah. class? You were, were you in Navy before? Yes. Right. Okay. So uh, one thing about the Navy uh, and I'll just kind of bring this up is the Navy is very, very strict on like officer enlisted separation and the air force really isn't air force is like, meh, you know, you can have, you can eat at the same table, chow hall. The only thing they really kind of separate is usually when you go to like, when you get housed on base, usually officers get put in, I guess a little nicer hotel room than enlisted to. But other than that, like usually everything's about the same. All my training is intermixed. Um, so when I have my hold classes to it's with enlisted and officers, everyone's together. Uh, and a lot of time uh, rank is kind of out the window. Um, if you think about like ranger school, um, and that's kind of what SEER training was like. It is kind of like ranger school. It's a leadership course is what it is. And so uh, ranger school, you don't wear rank on your uniform at all. It doesn't matter what you what rank you are. You could be a general, you could be a private everyone's treated the exact same. So from an instructor point of view, when I'm teaching something, I'm respectful to everyone. Uh, I don't care what rank you are. I'm going to treat you with respect, right? Obviously role-playing is role-playing. It's different. Like if, if I'm doing resistance training and my goal is to disgrace you, that's what I'm going to do. And then I, and rank could be a factor, right? I could be playing into your rank and saying you are, you're a, you're an 05 and you don't know anything. Like you can't tell me what this is and you're going to let this like E3 outsmart you. Like what kind of, you know, what kind of leader are you? So I can, you know, that, that kind of route. They realize it's all role play. It's not like, I really mean that, you know? <laughs> so, and I want the best for them. Uh, and same thing with like, I'm taking out to the field and stuff. Like 
everyone's opinion matters. Everyone's like, everyone has a voice, right? And if they disagree with something, they should all speak up and let me know. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell my opinion back and forth. So it's, I think it's a fairly even equal amount. Obviously you're going to address people with sir or, or in some kind of respectful way. Now you mentioned that uh, Sears school is, is it the Sears specialist school is more of a, a leadership? It's, the Sears Specialist School is a, pretty much a leadership course, yes. Where you are right now in your life, how, how would you sum up like your leadership philosophy? One thing I've noticed throughout, pretty much throughout my life is like a lot of things change, right? Your perspective changes based on what you've done, what you've seen. And there's a lot of things that still kind of hold true. Uh, and I, I want to say like the things that I've, that have consistently held what I've believed would be good in leadership is leadership starts with self-improvement, like working on yourself. And if you can consistently work on yourself and always strive to be a better person, then you'll be a better leader as well. And as soon as you get complacent where you're at, your leadership's, your leadership's going to go downhill. And one of the other things I've always said and always agreed with was like, I'm never going to ask someone to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And so as a leader, I think it's very important that if you ask someone to even do like, say, go clean the toilets, you better have done that before. And that's kind of one thing that, you know, I guess a lot of people don't respect officers who just came in as officers and weren't enlisted first is because they may not have experienced like that side of things. But, you know, some officers will get down and take out the trash and do, you know, the shit work, I should say. And I think if you want to be a good leader, you have to put yourself in all those roles. What would you say your biggest influence is on how, how you view leadership? Uh, I'm sure you've had varying degrees of good leadership, bad leadership throughout your career in the Air Force and, and probably in your life leading up to your military career. Man, some of the things that stand, up to, stand out to me the most, what I would say, have you, I'm sure you, you have a book list on your website, right? Uh, and I'm sure you have Dale Carnegie. Like how yes. to win, win friends and influence people. And that's like one like written back in the early 1900s. And I think it's still one of the best books to this day. And one of his things he says is don't criticize or talk bad about people. And I've had bosses above me who I just hear him talk bad about people all the time. And or just maybe not just one person, but multiple people and behind their back. And that usually like to me, if a leader does that, like instantly, like, you lose credibility. He's like, what if he's saying stuff about bad about me? Or I don't want to be like that kind of person who's that negative. And so I think you instantly lose leadership credibility as soon as you start um, talking negative or criticizing people like that, especially in front of you. Uh, I can think of some of the examples, like even before the military, I think one of the, the main examples I had, I used to work for Sam's Club. I did part-time, I worked in their tire department. So like selling batteries, selling tires, installing them on vehicles, um, tire you know, uh, repairs. We had this guy who just came in, he's a, our supervisor. I had all my friends were back there. Like we were all really good friends. Everyone in the shop was pretty tight. And so this guy came in and would just like rip people apart that he didn't like and just like talk bad about them try to get him fired or moved from the, the place. And he liked me. Like he always treated me very nicely, always liked me, but he talked bad about my friends. And so like, just because he liked me, I just didn't matter. Like you start talking bad. And I hear you talking bad about these people. Like, like 
yeah, you're not uh, the supervisor I want you to be, and I want someone else. So, and that's even you know that's even before I even got into the military. I think people need to learn a lot of these lessons young, right? And it's better to learn a lot of lessons like this younger and experience it. So later on, you can see, you know, like, oh, I don't want to be like that. You know, you catch catch these people before you turn into something like that. I think we had this conversation about the the title of of the podcast from members to excellence where I yeah and I think you would agree that a lot of the best lessons that we learn are from you know mistakes that we've made where we've fallen on our face pretty hard and those those lessons tend to stay with us a little better than you know a minor mistake you might make a a minor mistake more than once but typically if you are uh, a conscientious type of person and you have a pretty pretty decent mistake that affects you in a negative way that's going to stay with you and you're going to kind of shape your yourself to never make that mistake again do you have any memories of, of something like that that you've experienced that you'd be willing to share oh almost definitely i would like to consider myself a hard a hard learner right i don't typically learn through other people's mistakes and I don't really learn, you know, people just telling me what not to do. I have to physically experience it. It kind of sucks, but that's just the way I learn. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, most of my, I would say where I am now and a lot of the major changes I've had in my life were just based from mistakes and failures I've had. And I've said it uh, multiple times that I feel like, yeah, failures are good. Uh, but I also think people also need to hit rock bottom a lot of times to really make a change in their life. And if you never experience like what you can, what feels like everyone has a different rock bottom, right? Some people go homeless and, and uh, are just alcoholics and drunks and take some years to recover. Other people might just could be going in debt or getting the power shut off. I don't know. Well, something not as major, right? Uh, so everyone has a different rock bottom, getting divorced maybe. And I would say, like, I've had a lot of failures starting right after high school, going right into college. And a lot of my learning came from there because I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> my parents were great. Parents were awesome. Yeah, I was just a dumb kid. Right? I just wanted to, like, they never put a curfew on me. They, just, they let me do what I wanted. But I decided I'm going to move out after high school, right when I graduated with my girlfriend, and get, a, get my our own apartment. Okay, we'll make this happen. Uh, so I moved out of my parents' house, which I had, you know, free rent there. And we lasted about a year uh, before we broke up. And it was kind of like a messy breakup. We had been together for like three years. I mean, it was a decent amount of time, but not like crazy long. We had bought a car together. We had credit cards together. So we had a bunch of problems. And so it pretty much took that where she moved out, took the car. I was the co-signer on it. It got repossessed. It like ruined my credit. We had like three credit cards. We had... I don't know, maybe maxed out. She wasn't making any money. I was working and going to school. I was working a couple part-time jobs and going to school. And so I had creditors calling me constantly and they just felt like, and so I pretty much blew all my money too when I was in college. I was like, if I got it, like it went to paying very minimal bills and I was getting farther and farther in debt and just buying like alcohol and getting beer and getting, getting drunk. I remember directly one morning waking up, I go into work and uh, my boss is like, hey, I need you to go blow out these carports, all these leaves, um, sweep them out, make them look clean. And uh, I'm like, all right. 
And I, I really hated doing that job because it just felt pointless. Like I just blow all these leaves out and two days later, they all fly right back in there. So, yeah, I'll do this again. And uh, I was hungover and I was like, man, like I don't want to be doing this 10 years from now or even five years from now, even a few years from now. Like I need to make some changes and I need to get pretty much better, right? And so I felt like at that point, like my girlfriend left, place was a mess. I had constant creditors calling me, like I said. I even had the power shut off at one point because they didn't pay the electric bill. I, I was behind on rent and I was like, man, like I need changes. So right then and there, I, I swore like, I'm never going to buy another drink of alcohol until I'm wealthy, until I have, until I'm out of debt, debt and at least have a decent amount of money. I mean, everyone's wealthy is a different opinion. That was like my low wealth at the time. Like, yeah, as long as I'm out of debt, <laughs> you know? And from then on, I didn't buy another drink of alcohol for like, I want to say over three years. If someone offered it to me, I'd, I'd take a beer or something, but I never bought one. I started paying off on my debt. I started getting smarter and budgeting my time and started focusing on self-improvement, uh, reading self-help books, um, listening to podcasts. And so like, I, I knew like, as I kind of learned from one thing or the other, from a book to a podcast to, to people I talked to and hung out with, I was like, man, I got, I got hooked on it. I got hooked on becoming a better person. And so pretty much with those things, I was like, okay, I didn't listen to music. I didn't watch TV. I knew from everyone who's I've been listening to and, and talking with like losers do that. I don't want to be a loser. I want to be a better person. And so like I had an iPad playing with me while I was at work, sweeping out carports uh, that was just playing success stories and people overcoming adversities and, you know, retiring in their thirties, twenties, thirties, forties, you know, owning their own business. Uh, being their own boss and it just fueled me to like be better and keep striving to improve and so like I look back at a lot of those things and like man that that me back in like the early 20s propelled me so far into like my military career gave me so many advantages that it carried over and when I stopped doing those things you can see that whole like cycle kind of slow down and then you realize oh like so I keep a journal that's one thing if, if and I recommend to everyone, like you should journal. If you don't journal, like you're making a mistake because uh, you can look back and see where you were. Like, because I've been keeping a journal for like 11 years or 12 years now. And you can look back and see where you were and you can see a trend. Like I was like super motivated. I was doing this. I was reading these books and, you know, here's how I felt. This is where I was. This is what I was trying to do some of my goals. And then you look, you know, five years later, like, why am I not improving? Why am I not getting where I want to be or, I feel depressed or something, you know, something in life goes wrong. You can always scan through that book. And I like to do like, I find New Year's resolutions a little cliche, right? Because everyone does, but there should be a point every year or even every few months as you look back and review where you came from, have you been meeting what you want to do for that year, those last few months and reevaluate where you want to go. And so th- those were, I guess, big turning points right there. It's like, I felt like I hit rock bottom. I want you to improve. And that was just, you know, one of a few, I would say. And that, that was probably one of the big ones and the main ones. What led you to start journaling? I guess, I don't really know. I think I just felt compelled to write down my, so from a guy perspective, I feel like talking about your emotion, like, this is a long time ago, I feel like talking about your emotions and therapy and all that was like super weak. Like the, you don't do that. You don't talk to anyone about that, but I needed some kind of way to express how I felt. And I just felt like if I was really frustrated or really anxious, or just like when I was in debt and just felt like overwhelmed, 
like, what do I do? And I just feel like writing was the best, best method. And then later on down the road, it's like, man, all these people I listen to and talk to, they all say like, write down, write, 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 read books and write. Have you heard of Mark Devine? Called, he, he's the founder of Seal Fit. Have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. He's a Navy Seal commander. My first deployment was in Turkey. I followed his Un- Unbeatable Mind Academy. And that was something I did daily. And he say had that, us- Say that one more time. What is it? Unbeatable Mind Academy. Unbeatable Mind. Okay. And uh, pretty much it was just like, he taught you how to, how to uh, budget your day. You had daily routines and just developing a healthy habit and healthy routines throughout the day from each morning you get up and you do some kind of like yoga flow, meditation, and look at review what you should do for the day. Um, and then at night, you're going to budget your next day. So what you want to accomplish your next day. You know, and then what, and you also write down, like, how did your day go? The one you just had, like, did you accomplish all your goals that you met or you wanted to do? And so like, that's kind of what Sealford is, is kind of help us helping accomplish your goals. And that kind of gave me a start into like how I should be, how good daily flow should go. Um, and then I realized, okay, I'm just carrying on from here. I'm already started journaling. I might as well keep that habit. I'd say now I don't journal every day. Like I, I mean, you probably should, but I, I probably journal maybe once a month or so and just kind of like whenever I feel a need to write stuff down and and see where I'm at and reevaluate. Yeah, it's funny that you should bring up journaling because uh, like you said, even like military leadership, a lot of the the leadership books that I've read, they recommend journaling. They Hmm. say, you know, leaders read. So if you're not reading, you're you're kind of going stagnant. Yes. Um, You've got to continue to learn. Uh, develop yourself. And uh, one of the things that I found through a lot of my research and, and reading leadership books, I found this theme that Stoic philosophy is kind of embedded in what we would classify as sound leadership. So just for an example, uh, the leadership school at the United States Naval Academy, it's named after Admiral Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale, he was, he spent more time in the Hanoi Hilton than any other yep. human being. And it was uh, like eight years or nine years. Yeah. <laughs> he talks about his uh, philosophical beliefs and, and how he studied stoicism up until he was shot down and captured. And it was that sh- strength of will and self uh, just that sense of self and who who he was, and he wasn't going to allow his captors to change who he was, and that's that's just one example of you know Stoic philosophy kind of being embedded in in leadership. But even if it's not referenced as Stoic philosophy, you can see parallels once you start reading books on the the big. Stoic philosophers, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. But one of the Stoic practices that they recommend is journaling and starting off your day with a journal entry, basically writing down your, your goals for the day. This is These are some things that I want to keep in the front of my mind as I'm making my way through the day. And then at the end of the day, like you were saying, you kind of go through your day and say, okay, this is where I was successful. This is where I would have liked to have been better. But you kind of balance the ledger, so to speak, for the day 
And it does two things. It kind of shows you where you need to put more effort, but it mm -hmm. also helps you put that stuff to bed where you can sleep better. You're not going to bed with all that stuff on your mind. You're, you're settling it before you go to bed. Mm -hmm. So yep. uh, it was just interesting. It struck me that, I, you know, I, yeah. I find these themes throughout leadership literature and, and then talking with people, there's a lot of the same uh, recommendations for people that are wanting to develop their skills as a leader and just become yeah. a better person. Yes. Yeah. It helps you like, gives you more self-awareness, self-awareness as well. You know, that's an essential like foundation to being a leader is knowing yourself. And that's, yeah. that's ancient wisdom right there. Uh, <laughs> like I, I actually wrote about that in, in my book on one of the main columns in the uh, ruins of the Oracle at Delphi, the, the main column going into the, I don't know, portico or whatever, the main entrance there, all of these columns and pillars, they have stuff written. Uh, the, it's the maxims in, of uh, it's the Oracle at Delphi's maxims way, you know, things to keep in the front of your mind, to live a good life, that sort of thing. But the main one, oh, I, I gotcha. That the main one, the main maxim that is credited to the Oracle at Delphi is know thyself. Interesting. So, I had no idea. So awesome. that, that self-awareness thing is, I mean, that's consistent throughout history. That is one of the most important things about, you know, being a leader is without that self-awareness, you can't really tell how you're being perceived. If you're communicating effectively, you know, you, you don't know what your weak spots are and, you know, and, and being able to communicate with somebody and in a way ask them, you know, what, what are my blind spots? Where should I focus my efforts to become better? Cause yes, we all have blind spots. And mm -hmm. they're very hard to see on your own. Yep. <laughs> One thing that you and I have talked about you. So you're, you're currently studying leadership. Yes. Right? Um, yep. What, what school are you enrolled in? So I just enrolled in uh, Trident University. It's the, so it's a school, a college out of California or uh, yeah, I think California. I heard is very military friendly. And so that's why I called them up and was like, Hey, like, I went to school. I have about, you know, three years of credits already done. Uh, but that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> Do you, what, uh, what degree actually accepts the most transfer credits and we'll see, you know, it works. And so we look through it and there's a few, they only offer, I think like six different majors and, uh, there's like leadership kind of interested me. There was Homeland Security. It's another one that interested me. My original major was business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to own a CrossFit gym. Anyway, so leadership took all my credits. I'm like, oh, well, I just need a four-year degree. So I'm interested in uh, working for like a federal agency. And they all require a minimum of four-year leadership. Uh, I'm like, all right, sounds good. It's something I'm interested in anyway and probably need to improve and work on. Uh, so I just started. Uh, I'm only in my first class. So, and it's going to be going into like business ethics is my next one. Kind of getting in that leadership role soon. Through talking with you, I, I know that you're pretty well read. You know, for our listeners, what book would you recommend or books? Somebody that's um, 
you know, just starting to get into studying leadership. And uh, I know you mentioned Dale Carnegie, yeah. uh, How to Win Friends. Yeah, so if you, if, yeah, if you haven't read that one, that's always a start. I would definitely recommend that. Um, and uh, uh, I was looking at your list, and you have a lot of books in there from Jocko. Jocko has a lot of awesome ones. I think the most, my most recent read that I've been working on, I, I haven't finished the book yet, but it's called The Sheep Thief. And it's by uh, Al Walker. And pretty much it talks about uh, how anyone anywhere can make a positive change in life. And it's more for if you're, I guess it's a book more for if you're feeling down, if you feel like you failed, uh, you, you just had a recent failure in life. Um, and you need to pick yourself back up and where you want to start and how do you pick yourself back up and keep going. It's a short book and it's more of a, of a I wouldn't say it's written like a, like a story, but there's a lot of good lessons in there. I would say if that's, that'd be a, a, an awesome read. It's short. You'd probably be able to read it within like a couple of days, if that, like maybe less than that. I, I'm a slow reader, so it takes me about a week to finish a book, but some people just do it in like a day or two. <laughs> right. um, Sheep Thief, I'd recommend. Have you heard of Dan Crenshaw? Yeah, yeah. So he, he's uh, the the congressman out of Texas, a uh, yeah. former Navy SEAL. So he just wrote a book called Fortitude. And I wouldn't say it's like based on, I wouldn't say leadership per se, but it's definitely an awesome read. I, I listened to it actually. So I do a lot of driving. I drive up from Florida, North Carolina. It's like nine hours. I listened to his book recently and he talks about, he has a lot of awesome topics. Um, and I'd say one of the topics in there which I think would apply to leadership as well is do something hard. And he, you know, as a seal went through buds and stuff, but a lot of people don't do anything hard. Uh, they don't suffer. They don't sacrifice the, there's a lot of benefits to suffering, a lot of benefits to doing something hard. And his book kind of talks about that in, in a few of the chapters. And so I'd recommend fortitude. If you haven't read that, that actually sounds right up my alley. Have you ever discussed, um, I guess leaders, in a way, they should have some kind of experience. They should have done something hard to be put in a leadership position. I'm sure like you in the Navy experience and you were also a chief, right? right. Uh, in the fire department. And everyone's kind of gone through different hardships and different things to get to those points in life. And they can draw back on that experience or also put things in the perspective of like, this really isn't that bad. Like I've been through way worse or, or like, like I said, like with all my failures before, I can look at like new challenges ahead and be like, oh, well, I had power shut off. I had carbs. I had creditors calling me. I just felt stressed constantly. Like, this is nothing. This is just temporary. Um, and you realize that, you know, you can put it in perspective. And I think that's a lot of benefits from, from suffering. Throughout your life, what would yeah. you say, which experience do you think tested your fortitude the most? Maybe some experience that, you weren't sure you were going to make it through, maybe even thought about giving up. So there are some things I just did out of stupidity, right? And that was right after college. Maybe I didn't intend to make my life hard, uh, but it's just mistakes. Like the compound effect it just had on it. Otherwise, I feel like a lot of other things that I sought after something hard to do. Like I wanted some kind of suffering to feel gratitude. And you can almost get addicted to it after a while. It's like you want to just do something hard again because... You, you've come to a point of like comfort and complacency and you're not growing and you want to do something challenging. And so I think it's a lot of things over time 
uh, have just kind of brought me up. She's like, when I went through SEER training, there are so many things that I could have failed out of for and just thought about this is such, so terrible. I feel absolutely miserable all the time. You're always tired. You're always hungry. You're always just worn down and beat down and you're cut up and bruised up and everything and you're stressed out. And, but there was never a point in that training where I just felt like quitting, you know, like I didn't, I think, I don't know if, if, um, if it was fate in a way, or if it was like by design, but I feel like everything up until that point had led me to be where I was at that point in life. And that's exactly where I need to be because a lot of people felt like quitting. A lot of people did quit. We started, so like I said, with selection, we started with 50 people on selection. We graduate seven. Um, and after, after five different selection courses, we started a team with 55 people. And then we graduated 22 of those 55 uh, at the end of the year. I don't know what the actual percentage rate is, but it's a pretty decent cut of people. But there was never a point where I actually felt like quitting. There was many times where it's like felt terrible and beat down and just miserable, but I felt like I had been through way worse. And you realize you just take it day by day, meal by meal, chunk by chunk. And then you're pretty much designing yourself to be hard to kill. You're building that mental fortitude with every... So a lot of POWs in Vietnam, right? And they were tortured uh, and they were kept in cages and just treated like shit the entire time. But they did say like the, it's all these little things that had that happened to them built resilience in them and they built that fortitude. And so the more tough things you do, the men- more mentally tough you're going to be. That's pretty cool that you would bring that up. One of the things that I found in actually reading books written by Uh, special forces. I mean, that's a big thing in special forces is that that mentality of there, there is no quit. There is just, you pick yourself up and you push on because that's the only way you're going to lose is if you give up. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of people like the guys who try out for SF or try out for the seals and things like that. It's kind of a strange, I read the book, um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And it's Bear Grylls' autobiography. You know, if you Bear Grylls or not, he's the chief Boy Scout and over in the UK and big survival guy, former SAFs guy. Uh, but he was talking about going through selection. And he said that most people, most of the young guys didn't make it through selection. Most of the physically fit people didn't make it through because they didn't have that mental fortitude yet they hadn't developed they hadn't actually experienced enough hardships in their life um and the guys who are a little bit older who had experienced like some hard things were the ones that made it it wasn't that it's not the case for everyone but you know as you didn't notice that kind of trend i've actually heard this talking with some some navy seals that i know and they all say that that mentality going in, there was never even a, a thought that they would fail. Just like, I know that my life is going to be hell for a little while, but I, I'm going to come out the other end. You know, yep. you're, going to, you're going to have to break my body for me to stop. Yeah. You, and a lot of people, I think what causes people to quit is they look at the entire process that's going to take to get to the graduation, to get to the end point when you can't do that. Like you have to if you're going through something hard, you have to literally break it down to the small victories. Like I'm going to make it to lunchtime. I'm going to make it to dinner time. I'm going to make it to 
get a couple hours of sleep or whatever it is. And you look at each of those things little by little and small, small victories over time. If you're looking at like, man, I'm going to be out here for a month. Or I'm going to be doing this for the next six months over and over and over again. That's the mentally just going to break you. It doesn't matter how tough you are. And so I think a lot of that, and it takes experience, right? You have to kind of realize like stuff happens and you're just going to get through it and you have to take it little by little. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty awesome sound advice for, for people that are going through a tough time right now. I mean, don't look at the, the big entire process. Yeah. Right. You, you look at the end goal you look at the end goal, but you don't look at the entire process and take to get there and you have a plan. Right. But yeah, if you, you have to take the small victories and you know, one meal at a time or one day at a time, whatever it is. So one of the things that I I write about is, uh, well, like a grand strategy. And if you know where you want to be, like the kind of person you want to be, the kind of life you want to have, that sort of thing, and you, and you kind of establish that, that end state, Mm -hmm. and then you work your way back to where you are, you'll find that there's a lot of different paths that you could take to get you where you want to be. And if you work your your way back and you say, okay, well, this is the path that I would like to go. But if you fall on your face, taking that path, you already understand that, well, there's another way that I could get there. And you figure out how to make that transition. I I think you kind of set yourself up for, for more success if you kind of have that mindset that there isn't just one path to where I want to get to there. Yep. There's... It, I completely agree. And I, so I'm sure you've heard of Tony Robbins before, right. and he has a great quote that I, that I like to use. And he says, uh, remember that life doesn't happen to you, that life happens for you. And what the, I would say takeaway from that is it's like, if something happens and the door doesn't open or the opportunity doesn't present itself in every adversity or every problem that you face, there's an equal or better opportunity that happens. So there's probably a different route, a different door that's going to open. And what Tony Robbins is saying is like, that's intended. That's you're not intended to go through this door or intended to go through this other one. And you might not see it yet, but the opportunity will present itself. There's always another one out there. Have you read that book? Um, the obstacle is the way. No, I mean, is, who's that by? Uh, Ryan Holiday. So, okay. And oh, it's yeah. and it's a book on Stoic philosophy, and it's essentially <laughs> what you were just saying is that when we you know find ourselves up against some insurmountable obstacle, you you push forward, and you find a way. You find an opportunity in that. If you can't find a way under it, around it, over it, through it, you find the opportunity. Like, what is it about this obstacle that I need to learn from? And yeah. it might be that you just got to go back the way you came and <laughs> learn uh, another lesson before you take on that obstacle. Yep. Yeah. I completely agree. You know, you might have to be ready for it. And I think that's one thing about being a leader is. I talked about you have to work on yourself and self-improvement and um, you can never be a good leader if you're not the right person for for that specific task or that job or whatever it is and you should always work on yourself and sometimes like like Tony Robbins said or what you're saying is still philosophy 
you might not be ready for it and you have to go back and still have to learn another life lesson before you can continue on. So look at, look at your failures, look at your stuff you can see as failures as opportunities to be better. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything that, you know, we, we just recently met. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a, a lot about you that I don't know, but is there anything that maybe I should have asked you that I just didn't know enough to, to ask you, you know, something, you know, a valuable lesson mm-hmm. that maybe for somebody that is aspiring to go into special forces or uh, somebody that is challenging themselves with something that, you know, they're not quite sure they're going to be able to accomplish it, but you know, that, that self-leadership aspect, that self-awareness aspect, maybe just something, some lesson that you think is, is important to, to pass on. Yes. Um, so what, if you feel like you're driven toward a certain thing, if it's, if it's going through SF selection or being a PJ or a SEAL or whatever, whatever your goal is, uh, and you know, it's a long process and it's a hard process to get to, just, just go for it. That's what I just say. Like you're, if you feel compelled, you want to do it, just go for it. But keep in mind that you should constantly be physically prepared. So one thing I always did before I went through SEER training, I didn't train specifically for SEER training. I just trained for, I want to do something hard every single day and be better. Right. So CrossFit was one of my, I did mixed martial arts and fighting and stuff, which is a good push. But I also enjoyed CrossFit. I enjoyed the competition. And it felt like I did something hard that day. Like I did an hour-long workout um, or it could be a 10-minute workout, whatever it was for the gym. But I still pushed myself to be better and push myself harder to the point where I was laying on the floor. And sometimes my recovery on the floor took longer than the actual workout itself. So push yourself every day. You know, because that's what selection is going to be like. You're going to be pushed constantly and you need to have those, all these mental victories before this, you know, because if you want to go through something super hard that takes, you know, a year to two or three years long to to finish, you need to have a lot of that mental fortitude already put in place and built up. So I would suggest, I like CrossFit. I would suggest doing, going to a CrossFit gym and pushing yourself and do competitions and things like that and preparedness for it. Know yourself for one. Um, journal, right? Read books, read people's autobiographies. So if you want to be a SEAL, if you want to be whatever it is your goal is, get familiar with those people. So I, I read and listened to um, all kinds of autobiographies or just biographies um, from like Fearless with Adam Brown to Jocko's books to I'm trying to think of some other ones. Uh, but that's what I like to listen to. It interests me like autobiographies, you know, lone survivor or, um, oh, what's that one, uh, one bold away with Daniel flick. He was a Marine Raider is all those guys. And so if I had a goal, I was going to go into that. I wanted to surround myself with those kind of people because where you are five years from now is going to be, I'm sure you're aware based on the people you're with and you hang out with and the books you read. Now that's that's what's gonna that's where your success is. You hang out with losers and hang out with like people who aren't going in the direction you want to go. They're not going to help you get in that direction. So I, I would start with there, self improvement, reading those books, being around people you want to be like, and then doing something hard every day. Have you done CrossFit before? Have you ever tried that? Yeah, I, I've done one competition. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 
um yeah when i was when i was with orange county we have a, a gym at the training facility called the fit pit and it's set up to not only mentor incoming recruits to prepare them mm-hmm. for the job but also to to really develop the people that are working for the department and doing it was set up like a crossfit gym and so every year just before september 11th they do the 343 hero challenge which is a crossfit competition and the money raised from that is donated uh to to a charity first year that we did it i competed and then subsequent years i volunteered as you know the person that resets stuff okay yeah because i I can tell you that that first competition about killed me (laughs) (laughs) it should the competition is a whole different feel altogether you know yeah I really enjoy CrossFit. The thing for me is you got to take ego out of it. Yeah, taking the ego out is hard for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that's always a big thing in any any learning aspect or anywhere you want to be better at something. Ego has to come out and and we talk about, you know, with leadership, leadership a big role in leadership is how well you follow. If you are you a good follower and you have to take the ego out to be a follower, you know. You you mentioned Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai and you're doing some cage mm-hmm. fighting. Now prior to doing all that, did, I mean, did you play sports in high school? I did. I I well, not really high school. I, I so I started with I uh, did soccer, I did track, I did cross country. And then around my sophomore year of high school, I switched schools and went to a post school. And I didn't do any sports for them. Uh, but I did do, I did Taekwondo on the outside. I played uh, competitive paintball all over the country um, for like the MPPL, National Professional Paintball League, uh, the PSP, Professional Sports Promotions. Um, and then I also uh, did competitive rock climbing. So I did a lot of like unusual sports, more solo sport. I guess paintball is a team sport, but I did unusual stuff. I didn't really do the traditional school stuff anymore. Yeah. And how, how did you get into competitive rock climbing? <laughs> uh, there's something about climbing that just always drew me. Like I was just felt like I was naturally good at climbing. Um, I, I liked it. I climbed trees as a kid. And our YMCA just opened, uh, opened a brand new uh, Y and they had like a, like a million dollar rock climbing wall put in there. And it, it was all natural looking rocks like a sandstone type spray that was on there. It was an entrepreneur's, entrepreneur's wall is what it was called, or the brand. And they had cracks and everything in it. So anyway, I kind of got into, I joined the Y and got into rock climbing and pretty much got a job there, started teaching climbing, and then became a fairly well-known climber in the area. And I also got asked to go and be a rock climbing manager at a different gym, you know, did climbing competitions and started traveling for that. And that was, that I weighed like 155 at the time. I was a small, smaller person. <laughs> And then I got into fighting and gained a little weight and then got into CrossFit and then gained even more weight. <laughs> so I'm not how, a, as good of a climber as I used to be. How tall are you? You're about six foot, uh, right? I, no, I'm just under 5'10", five, 5'9", five, three quarters. I ran about 195, somewhere in there. Yeah, maybe it's just your, your size threw me off because you're a pretty big guy. 
<laughs> yeah. Now all my brothers are way taller than I am. I'm like the shortest one in my family. So <laughs> I don't know where I, how I got that gene, but <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the cage fighting, where, where did you compete? How did you do? I, uh, so kind of a weird story. I, I, I had done Taekwondo for a long time. I got a black belt and I was just so sick at traditional martial arts. I was tired of the forms and tired of like, just like, I don't know, just the traditional style. But I, fin- I got the black belt, I'm like, all right, I'm done. And I was walking through, I think it was the mall. I don't remember where. And this guy came up to me, this big ripped dude. And he's like, hey, do you fight? I was like, like, no, but I have a black belt. Like, I've done a lot of scarring. He's like, oh, he's like, you look like a fighter. Uh, get, he gave me his business card. He's like, hey, I have a fight coming up. I need fighters to come fight. It's an amateur event. Would you be interested? I'm like, sure, why not? Give it a try. I had some friends that knew like judo and jujitsu and a few other little, you know, um, self disciplines. And so I worked with them for a little bit and did this fight. I work out a lot, I was a big workout person. So I came out. And I was fighting this guy from Oklahoma and he was a little bit, I wouldn't say he was chubby, but he wasn't like cut up like I was. I didn't have, didn't have abs or anything. And I think I just intimidated him more than anything. I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, Taekwondo was just more self-defense and was not based for fighting, but I was strong. And so like he instantly saw me and thought he was going to get killed. And uh, we had one round, we clinched up, uh, took him down. I think he fell wrong and like broke his pinky on his hand. And after that, like the, so the bell rang, went to his corner and then he quit. He's like, I'm done. I'm not going to fight this guy anymore. And so that's how my first fight went. It was like, I won. I'm like, ah, I did it. <laughs> um, and uh, so I started training more and more after that. And so it was, it was kind of addicting. It was fun. I, I liked the training. I like being pushed in the gym and doing something hard. My gym that I was training at randomly got a phone call and they're like, hey, we're up in Kansas City. We're looking, we're calling all the local gyms. Uh, we're looking for fighters because uh, the fight team that was supposed to come up here all backed out. And now we have a group coming from, I guess, you know, Matt Hughes, and I'm sure familiar with him or not. Mm-hmm. He had his training camp coming down to Kansas City to do like a whole promotion, whole fight. But all of the opponents backed out. And it's like, we're just trying to call people. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll come fight. Went up there and fought like a, a, a real fighter at the time. And we went three rounds um, and I just got destroyed for three rounds. So I lost by unanimous decision. I'm like, man, now I know what a real fight feels like. like um, so I didn't, I didn't get like, I didn't quit. I didn't tap out or anything. The guy didn't want to go to the ground with me because he looked like a wrestler. So he tried to stay standing the whole time. And he was a pretty good kickboxer. So anyway, that put me in new perspective. I'm like, this is how I should be training. This is where my weaknesses are. Um, so I tried, started training again, had a second fight with that same promoter. They liked me. I'm like, hey, I will bring you back to a different, you know, a different fight. And I was down in Arkansas. I won that fight uh, by armbar in the second round. And then I had a fourth fight after that. In Kansas, in Wichita, where I grew up, and they, uh, I lo- ended up losing that fight, but it was to Doctor Stoppage. Um, I was winning on points. I think it was like the first or second. I think it was the second round. Uh, I took like an elbow to my eyebrow, right, right above my eye, and it's very bony. And so, if you look, if you watch how the fighters go out to the cage, they put Vaseline on their cheekbones, their nose, and their eyes because that's really prone to being cut. 
right there. Anyway, this has a strike that hit me right there. It split it open. Um, so the bell rang, went to my corner. The doctor came out and was like looking at it. And he's like, we can't just put Vaseline in that. It's way too big, too deep. Uh, we have to call the fight. I'm like, oh man, I, I was going to win. Like I had enough points. Um, or if it went to the decision, he just had like a lucky hit. Uh, but the whole cage is like just filled with blood. Um, he has a head injuries, like bleed constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm like, all right. So uh, had had two wins and two losses at that point. And then I had one more fight after that. And I won by a knee bar, I think in the first round. Uh, we went to the ground. I don't know what happens. So we were rolling around and somehow I grabbed his leg and um, twisted around on it. If you're familiar with any of the, like, the locks, um, it's essentially like an arm bar, but I grabbed his leg and pulled his, pulled his knee. And so it's very painful if you don't tap. Um, it could essentially break you at where your knee is. So won that fight, I think it was in the first round. And I joined the military after that, so I haven't really fought since then. So five fights, three and two. Do you think you'll go back to doing any fighting? Probably not. Um, I really enjoyed the training. I would probably go back to the training again, but I don't think I'll cage fight again. Like, it, yeah, I did it once, and it's not fun getting punched in your face. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I feel you. So it's definitely a good experience and uh you know to say you, you've done it and you know what it's like to be in a fight and then you also learn to control your adrenaline and control those that butterfly feeling and outside of the air force i know that you do train civilians mm -hmm. uh, like survival skills do you have like an established business or is it just something you do as a as a hobby so what i've been working on right now um I don't know if, if uh, any of your followers have Instagram or not. So I, I have a couple, I would say, startup businesses I'm working with. Uh, one is personal training. I do a lot of programming for like CrossFit competitions or just if you have certain goals of losing weight or just being more in shape or being more healthy. And that's called thrive.fitness.squad. And I do programming on that page, but then also can work one-on-one. -on -one. My other page I just started, and I'm still building content for it and working on like a blog and putting the actual courses together is a survival slash adventure school. It's called um, thrive dot underscore or survive dot underscore thrive adventure school. Or yeah, yeah, thrive dot underscore thrive. I don't know. I have to look it up. Survive dot thrive. <clears throat> um, and it's uh, essentially what it is. I'll hold like anywhere from a two day course to like a seven day course of survival with a more of a focus on the adventure side of things. It's going to be more fun. I don't want to be the two day course will be more survival principles, right? It's just very basic working with building shelters, making fires, collecting water, food, um, that kind of things. And it's all in one area, like a static camp. Uh, and that's just a basic course. There's a basic course that be four to five days long where we'll cover those same things, but we'll do land navigation. And land navigation is a whole other principle that, uh, that takes a lot of skill and practice. And so we need a little bit longer time. Um, I'll also offer, and that's a basic five-day, four to five-day. I'll do an advanced four to five-day, which will be less equipment, less food, um, and more advanced techniques to starting fires, to building different types of snares, uh, more advanced land, naviga land navigation uh, tactics from like using celestial aids to train navigation, those kind of things, more advanced map reading. 
So it just kind of progresses from the basic course, uh, more natural shelters. So you won't have like the luxury of a, say a tarp or a poncho or whatnot. You're just building a shelter with more natural material. And then the one, new one I've been working on uh, that I want to put onto the, the page is a wilderness therapy um, training. This one is more based on if you ever gone out into the wilderness and you just need alone time or just want to be more self-aware or just spend time in the wilderness really helps. And I think doing that and also journaling at the same time, which is the main principle behind the course, we'll still learn survival stuff, but the focus is in on more of a therapy type thing. So I'll ask questions and I'll give you like writing prompts throughout the day and each night and you have a journal out there and I want you guys to answer like questions that I give you and then also write, expand the pound, how you're feeling and what you think and what your goals are for the course. And you'll do this every night with different writing prompts throughout the, throughout the week. Um, and then by the end of the week, hopefully like the wilderness kind of like has a way about, it's, it's so therapeutic and you feel a sense about you that, you know, because you're away from electronics, we won't have phones out there. Like I don't want any kind of phones. So I'll let you keep it on you, but it'll be turned off. And unless there's an emergency, you know, you'll have your contact information will be anyone who needs to contact you will have my number and they can call me and I can get a hold of you. But otherwise, you'll be away from all social media, all distractions, and it's just you in the wilderness. That sounds pretty awesome. One of the things that I can't remember the name of the I, I think there was like a, a thing going around like 22 veterans commit suicide every day or something like that. Right. So I think the the name of the thing was the the 22 or it, it's has the number in it um, to bring awareness to, you know, the veterans that are returning and suffering and uh, yeah. a lot of times just suffering in silence. I have resources on my webpage on uh, hollenbachleadership.com and it's more geared towards first responders, uh, PTSD, that sort of thing. But it translates over. Uh, I know that there's more specific uh, treatment for veterans uh, with with PTSD uh, due to combat experience, that sort of thing. Now, and I know that there's veterans out there that start up programs that take uh, PTSD veterans, and you know they do things to kind of help them. Yeah, get through. I know, like Chris Chris Kyle before he was killed, and that's what he took people to the shooting range and helped right. them, you know. Yeah, re recover. So would you say that your um, wilderness therapy, I know that you're probably not a mental health counselor, but. No, <laughs> I, I think, um, so someone as explaining the whole program that had the philosophy behind it and uh, they're like, well, do you think it would, um, you want to like gear the questions toward their specific type of problem or whatnot? And I think the, honestly, I think the wilderness and um, and goes back to doing something hard because the days I want to take people out there are not easy. They're not going to be easy days. It's not just a relaxing trip. It's you'll be pushed. You'll be physically tired and exhausted each day. But a combination of just being tired and out in nature uh, has a way of just healing. Doesn't really matter what problems you have. It just I think a lot of it has to do with getting away from society, getting away from all the distractions in life, um, and just getting reset back to the beginning and back to like your, I don't know what, what would be the word to use, but just back to, just back to nature. And 
Yeah, I think it'd be a great way for people with PTSD with any kind of problems, um, even with first responders who've you know seen horrific sites from car accidents to rape victims or anything like that. You know, to get out and just kind of reset and get away from everything, uh, and or just people or just ordinary people in life who want to be you know better, who want to you know have like a more of a mindset on like day-to-day life and business and things and help everyone just being in the mountains you know around the stars because a lot of people have like artificial noise on their phone right you have a crackling campfire or crickets in the background to help them go to sleep or meditate or whatever they do and uh there's something about actually being out there in the air and away from like all the city lights and stuff i gotta tell you i want to sign up for uh your next adventure so yeah, it's uh, thrive dot underscore and sorry, survive dot underscore and thrive is uh, the Instagram page. It's um, still it only has a couple pictures and still being like uh, more context and be uh, developed over time here. And I'll get like a website up pretty soon and hopefully get some courses going. So awesome. good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of that is going to be in North Carolina. So a lot of it's going to be based on what I kind of can, can tailor it toward the clientele, like where they're at, where they're willing to travel to, where they want to go. Obviously, like if we had ability to go to Montana, like I would definitely take a whole group out to Montana and do something out there. Uh, if someone wants to do some just in driving range, you know, they were willing to drive like eight hours, we can find something within that range. So it's it'd be more tailored based on who wants to take the course. My, my goal right now is finding a bunch of different sites and locations to do the training at, play it by there. Like if someone, hey, we can only go to Georgia, I can find somewhere in Georgia where we can do it. Man, I really appreciate you taking the time to let me interview you. We've gone through a lot of stuff and you've given a completely different perspective. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I knew a little bit about SEER, but I mean, you shed a lot, a lot of light on, on that program and Yep. And all the other branches are different. Air Force is the only one that treats it like a full-time job. So if, if you're, if anyone's listening, that's in the army or Navy, it, it's a little bit different for the Air Force. So That's pretty cool, man. Thanks again. And uh, I really appreciate yeah. it, man. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. It was good talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.